Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Leif Douch, a candidate for district attorney. He's a deputy attorney general for the state of California and the past president of the city's Juvenile Justice Commission. We're talking today about what he'd do about the city's biggest problems, from untreated mental illness on our streets, to open-air drug dealing, to car break-ins and other property crime. He's also the first City Insider guest to ever bring an instrument, and you'll hear him play. I'll be right back with Leif Douch. Leif Douch, it's good to see you today. Good to see you too, Heather. First, let's start with a little getting to know you session for the listeners. Um, Sum up your life (laughs) in two minutes. Where were you born? Where'd you go to school? What do you do now? So I'm a California native, grew up in the Santa Barbara area. Mm -hmm. My family's got an organic farm down there. Mm. uh, And my mom was a nurse at the local uh, juvenile detention facility down there Uh uh, and would work with kids that were in the juvenile justice system and in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was my kind of earliest exposure to criminal justice. Okay. Uh, she would work night shifts at the the local uh, facility, come back in the morning and tell my sister and I as we were getting up uh, ready to go to school, tell us about the kids that she was working with. Wow. And, you know, the very difficult situations they were coming from. And at one point, my mom said, it's not enough for me just to tell you about these kids. Uh, we've got to bring them into our home. Oh, my gosh. And I would love to tell you that at eight years old, I was super excited <laughs> about a bunch of kids that I didn't know coming into our uh, house. But uh, my mom uh, prevailed upon us and it was the best thing that ever happened to our family. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So how many kids were We brought took in? in a dozen foster kids over the course of a decade. Not all at once. We're okay. not crazy. <laughs> that would be a good sitcom. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, we ended up adopting two kids uh, through the foster care system. Uh-huh. And my little brother, Ian, and my little sister, Alyssa. And so from, again, a very young age, I saw the impacts of trauma, of mm-hmm. poverty, of race, mm-hmm. cycles of crime. But I also saw amazing people, folks like my mom, working inside the criminal justice system to make it more fair and just. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, you went to some schools people might have heard of before. <laughs> well, yeah, growing up on an organic farm in, in California, um, I you know was very fortunate to, to go to places like Yale and, and Harvard Law, um, worked on President Obama's campaigns in 2008, mm-hmm. um, doing debate prep uh, mm-hmm. and the campaign again in 2012, doing voter protection work, mm-hmm. making sure that everyone's voice could be heard in the democratic process. Mm-hmm. Uh, served as the president of the Juvenile Probation Commission here in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, from 2016 to 2018. And then for the last seven years, I've been a deputy attorney general for the state of California in the criminal division. And why do you want to be the district attorney of San Francisco? I'm running for district attorney really to restore some accountability to the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. um, whether that's holding our city leaders accountable for the homelessness crisis and the mental health crisis, holding the organized rings accountable that are breaking car into mm-hmm. cars by the dozen uh, or holding. Thousands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, 31,000 mm-hmm. reported car break ins in one year. Yeah. Um, and holding accountable law enforcement uh, when they engage in misconduct. Mm-hmm. I think there's accountability that's really been missing from the equation. And talking to folks all across the city on a daily basis, um, they're looking for that sense of accountability mm-hmm. um, and making sure there's some justice for people who are victims of crime. You've called San Francisco's criminal justice system broken. Would you say that's a failure of the current district attorney's office or is that more across the board? Is that every agency in San Francisco? I think there's enough uh, blame to go around, but I do think the district attorney's office right now is struggling. Mm-hmm. A quarter of the attorneys have left in the last year. They're losing big cases 
and they're really having a difficult time recruiting and retaining the best attorneys. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, this is a, a skill industry. If you can't attract and retain the best and brightest coming out of law school, coming out of firms, coming out of other government agencies, you can't do your job effectively. So I, I, I do think there's a major problem with the DA's office, but I think there are problems elsewhere as well that need to be addressed. To what do you attribute the big turnover in the district attorney's office currently? So I have a lot of friends in the DA's office uh, and then also at the attorney general's office. We oversee all of the felony convictions that come out of the DA's office, not just in San Francisco, but also in the 18 uh, northernmost DA's offices throughout California. Mm-hmm. So we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And too often, uh, the ugly is coming out of San Francisco. And there's really two things that I keep hearing over and over and over. One is the crushing caseloads that assistant DAs are dealing with. We're talking about 120 cases at any given time. Wow. There is, is that misdemeanor felonies or both? Uh, mostly in misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Um, but the felony attorneys have ridiculous caseloads as well. And you're just not able to do the sort of individualized assessment or individualized justice that each of those cases deserve when you've got 120. Compare that to the public defender's office on the other side of the aisle. Frequently, they're going up against folks who only have 60 or 70 cases mm-hmm. at any given time. So you've got twice the caseload, plus you've got the burden of proof, plus you have to corral all the witnesses, plus you have to deal with juries and the bench mm-hmm. uh, that oftentimes are kind of stacked against you. But every DA across the country has to do those things. So why is San Francisco falling down on the job? So 120 cases at any given time truly is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the second part of this is unsupportive leadership. Um, there is a, a general consensus within the DA's office um, that they are being held back from being able to zealously advocate for the public and for victims of crime. Hmm. Why, why is that? I think, frankly, it's a misread of what San Francisco wants. Uh, I know we're a, a compassionate, progressive city, um, but when it comes to public safety, people want justice. Um, they look at car break-ins. We mentioned earlier, 31,000 reported car break-ins in 2017. Mm-hmm. There were 500 arrests. Of those 500 cases sent to the DA's office, they took one of those cases to trial mm-hmm. in the entire year, mm-hmm. and they lost it. If you look at sexual assaults, there were 757 reported sexual assaults in 2017. After trial, they only got nine convictions. So these are the sorts of frustrations that I hear from people within the office, um, but especially from the city writ large. The recent assault by a mentally ill homeless man of a woman near the Embarcadero has gotten a lot of attention in large part because the crime was captured in a horrifying security camera footage. Is that an example to you of a broken system? And if you were the DA, would you have directed your assistant district attorney to do something different in this case? It absolutely is an example uh, of the broken system. Uh, This is something that happened to be caught on video, but there are dozens of cases like this every day in San Francisco that go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. The big piece that's missing uh, in in my mind is any real mental health system in San Francisco to address the needs of someone like like Mr. Vincent. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one thing for us as a city to say that uh, criminal justice system or our county jails are not the right place for people with mental illness or drug abuse. But if we are going to make that decision, we have to have a mental health system for someone like him to get the help that he needs, whether that's voluntarily or involuntarily. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've been calling on taking the juvenile hall, which the city is going to be shutting down in 2021, and turning that into a mental health justice center, a 150-bed facility for folks like him uh, to get the help that they need. A locked facility? 
It, it'll be locked as, as I envision it. It'll be a, a space for crisis care, for short-term mm-hmm. care, but then also a locked facility for people under mental health conservatorship orders. Mm-hmm. Um, as you've reported, as many other people around the city have talked about, there is a serious lack of mental health beds in mm-hmm. this city. And I've talked to a number of ER docs who say, we don't even bother seeking conservatorship orders for people we know need help because we don't have the mental health beds. Mm -hmm. Let's build out that mental health capacity and make sure that people, if they don't belong in the criminal justice system, if they don't belong in our county jail, let's make sure they're safely being treated in a place where they're not going to harm themselves or others. Would you support expanding the conservatorship program? I wrote about a recent report out of City Hall that showed we're conserving um, 50% fewer people than we did just a few years ago and that other counties, including San Mateo, Marin, and others around California are conserving far more people than us per capita. I do support expanding conservatorship. And I think, especially for someone who grew up with a mother working, you know, in the healthcare system, dealing with folks in the juvenile justice system, that it's actually more compassionate and progressive Mm -hmm. to help people get the help that they need. And mind you, we need a process for conservatorship that respects the dignity and the due process rights of these individuals. Um, And I think that our conservatorship process does They're represented by counsel. They'll be evaluated by by a psychiatrist. This goes in front of a judge. The threshold as of right now is eight psychiatric holds, 5150 holds in a year just to qualify. So I think we can do a much better job of respecting people's rights and dignity while also ensuring they get the help they need. Do you think that that is too high of a threshold, the eight 5150s in a year? From some reporting that I've seen, it may only apply to a handful of people mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Uh, I work in the Tenderloin. Mm-hmm. The attorney general's office is at the corner of Larkin and Golden Gate. So whether it's walking from the bus to work or walking to Morty's Deli down Golden Gate mm-hmm. for a sandwich for lunch, I see more than a handful of people on a daily basis mm-hmm. who could benefit from mental health treatment. So I do think the threshold is too high. Um, I know having worked on our legislative team at the attorney general's office, sometimes you get the idea enshrined in law first and foremost, and then you can tweak it once it's there. So I would like to see efforts over the next couple years of uh, reevaluating that threshold and say, is that really addressing um, the problem in a significant way? San Francisco is also less likely than other counties to conserve people under the category in state law called gravely disabled, which is um, someone who's unable to care- provide for their own food, shelter, or clothing. And it seems like, you know, anybody could walk around San Francisco and see examples of that playing out before us, you know, five minutes from where we're recording this podcast today. Do you think that that, should, that category should be emphasized as well? Absolutely. But this all has to start with an expansion of our capacity Mm -hmm. to address these conservatorship cases. We can expand the laws, but if we don't have the beds for people to get treatment, it's not going to matter. So that's why this idea, I think, of taking Juvenile Hall, which is a 150-bed facility, retrofitted a decade ago. It's state-of-the-art. I was the president of the Juvenile Probation Commission. uh, So I know the facility. I know the budget. I know its, um, its capabilities. If we can take that and turn it into a mental health justice center, we can show, you know, start small, but have a proof of concept that it works and then expand it beyond. It's also a scalable model throughout the state Mm -hmm. of the 58 counties in California. 54 of them have juvenile halls. Each of those juvenile halls is under half capacity. So if we show that this works in San Francisco, this can be modeled throughout the state, and we start to undo the harm of Ronald Reagan shutting mm-hmm. down the you know, state mental health hospitals 40 years ago. Growing up in California, 
I always heard people blame Reagan for causing this problem. And don't get me wrong, I am down to blame Reagan for <laughs> just about any problem under the sun. But I also think there's a statute of limitations on how long we can blame Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. for our problems. And it's certainly less than that's 40 years. That's not solving the problem now. It's not, that's not leadership. And that's, I think, what you see all too often in San Francisco is city agencies, especially in the law enforcement sector, pointing the finger and blaming each other. That is not what leadership is about. It's about stepping up and providing affirmative ideas and proposals. And I hope that's what our campaign you know, has really been all about. And I hope voters see that. Switching gears um, to drugs, <laughs> everybody else's favorite subject in San Francisco. <laughs> How would you make progress on the scourge of open air drug dealing, particularly in the Tenderloin and South of Market? Again, I work in the Tenderloin, so I see this problem every single day. Walking down Golden Gate, I'll pass probably four or five hand-to-hand drug transactions, and we're not talking about weed. Mm-hmm. We're talking about fentanyl. We're talking about heroin. We're talking about meth. Drugs that kill people. Mm-hmm. Ten fentanyl overdoses in the first two weeks of June alone. I think we have been misguided in our general approach to drugs, saying the war on drugs was a failure, so we're not going to do anything about use or dealing. And the conversations I'm having with San Franciscans start with the premise, yes, the war on drugs was a failure, but there's a difference between drug use and drug dealing. Mm -hmm. And there is widespread support for a firmer approach to drug dealers, particularly the out-of-town organized gangs that are coming into San Francisco to deal drugs here. Mm -hmm. And we can have compassion and empathy, as I do, for people battling addiction on our streets. And we can offer counseling and services and treatment for them. And couple that with more of a crackdown on drug dealing. And I think that needs to happen in San Francisco. Right now, um, both dealing and use is pretty much just a nothing to see here attitude. Um, I understand that you would crack down criminally on the dealers. But what do you think should be done about the users? Do you, Is it OK in your mind to allow people to inject needles into their body parts in broad daylight? near playgrounds? I don't think it is okay. I've been a supporter of the safe injection sites uh, that have been proposed. I toured the um, facility at Glide Cathedral that was put up last year. And I think from a harm reduction standpoint of keeping people alive and offering them that off-ramp from addiction um, is critically important. But I think all too often in San Francisco, we just offer carrot after carrot after carrot. Mm -hmm. Those only work if you pair them with a stick. And so under kind of a comprehensive drug reform package, we should expand things like safe injection sites, but pair that with a crackdown on the dealing side. And I think that will really address a lot of the conditions on the street and hopefully start to address some of those root causes of addiction. What do you make of the federal government's decision to ramp up its own enforcement of dealing in the tenderloin? Is that a signal that City Hall isn't up to the task? It's it's a real shame. And I think it is a sign of the failure of local leadership uh, to address this problem. Uh, The district attorney, the police, uh, city hall, the mayor's office uh, have pretended like this wasn't a problem for too long. And unfortunately, that's led to a situation where the Trump administration comes in. I don't support the crackdown because I don't think the Trump administration has the sort of nuance or appreciation for what's driving these issues. For example, they don't support safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. So this is just going to likely be the war on drugs all over again. But if we don't have strong local leadership, and address these issues in our own backyard, then it does kind of beg in, you know, outside involvement, whether it's from the state or unfortunately here, the federal government. There seems to be some confusion um, among everyday San Franciscans about what it means that San Francisco is a sanctuary city. As a DA, how would you like to see the city handle undocumented immigrants who are arrested for serious crimes? 
So I'm proud to live in a sanctuary city. I support our policy, um, but you're absolutely right. We need to be crystal clear about what being a sanctuary city means and what it doesn't. I, I was on a flight uh, from the East Coast back to San Francisco about two years ago, and I passed through Dallas. And this uh, Texan uh, got on the flight and sat down next to me, and we started chatting. And she said, oh, you're from San Francisco. You mean to tell me that y'all are a sanctuary city? And I said, you know, yes, ma'am. And she said, so if you are undocumented, and she did not use the phrase undocumented, <laughs> right. I'll use it here. You mean to tell me that if you're undocumented and you commit a crime, you just get away with it? And I said, well, no, ma'am, that is not what a sanctuary city is. If you are undocumented and you commit a crime, you're arrested just like anyone else. You're prosecuted just like anyone else. If you're convicted, you're sentenced, you serve your time just like anyone else. The only difference is at the end of your, you know, serv serving your sentence, we're not going to give ICE uh, a heads up that we're going to be releasing you. And she looked at me and she said, you know, that's not what I get from Fox News. Thank you for <laughs> explaining that. And, you know, I, I think it's important for our leaders to be really clear about it and introduce some nuance and some facts into the conversation. Um, it's hard in this day and age, you know, with just sound bites and, and press, uh, you know, clickbait. Um, but the reality is we have to have that nuanced conversation and make that case to the rest of the country. I will add that not too long after that conversation, the Kate Steinle trial happened. Mm -hmm. Where you have an undocumented person who was charged, I would say overcharged, um, where the DA's office went for first degree murder on a bullet ricochet where he didn't know the victim and there was no evidence he brought a gun to the scene. Um, I'm speaking here in my personal capacity mm -hmm. because I'm at the attorney general's office and I've been involved with that litigation. But just in a personal capacity, the case was overcharged. And as a result of that, the jury walked the guy. He wasn't convicted of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or even involuntary manslaughter. What would you have gone for if you were the DA? I would have charged it as second-degree murder, um, which is conscious disregard for human life. The way you, you learn second-degree murder in law school is you got someone in public waving a gun around. He doesn't intend to shoot anyone. The gun goes off and someone dies. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the theory you, you start with. If it ends up being a manslaughter conviction instead, I would say that could still be a just outcome. But anyone who's ever been in front of a jury knows if you overreach and you offer them an inherently implausible theory, they're going to turn to the other side and say, you know, the prosecutor is being unreasonable. What should we do? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened in that case. Big picture, that sent a message to the rest of the country that if you're undocumented, you can get away with murder. Mm -hmm. And that did more, that case and the way it was handled by the DA's office did more to set back sanctuary city policy than I think anything that's happened nationwide in the last 20 years. Mm. That's why you need strong, capable leadership in that DA's office and people who know how to charge cases the right way. I'm the only candidate in this race who's a prosecutor and who manages a team of prosecutors. And that's what being, you know, the job of being DA is. Mm -hmm. The current district attorney, George Gascon, um, famously never tried a case, right, before he was named district attorney. Um, by former Mayor Gavin Newsom. How would you grade Gascon's performance in office? I think on some of the policy level, um, he's been a statewide leader, um, and he has used the office to really um, raise the profile of a number of issues. Uh, the marijuana expungements uh, mm -hmm. are an area where I think we've really been a state and national leader, um, trying to minimize some of the scarring effects of a criminal conviction um, over the course of someone's life after they've served their time. I think the idea of race-blind charging, which is a pilot project that he has rolled out recently that the next district attorney uh, will uh, implement, uh, is a really innovative way of kind of tackling the um, way that race rears its ugly head in our How criminal justice system. How does that program work? So you would redact the police report for any crime 
um, taking out the name, the neighborhood, um, and the race mm. of the defendant and the witnesses, uh, and the first prosecutor make a charging decision just based on the facts, and then it would go in front of a second prosecutor, and they would see all of the information. And if they wanted to depart from the first charging decision, they'd have to explain why in writing. Okay. So that's something that the next DA will have to implement, and we've been nationwide leaders on that. The problem is sometimes if you're only focused on being the first in the nation, you forget about doing the everyday work of building a great city mm -hmm. here at home. Uh -huh. And I think if you look at 9,000 homeless people sleeping under the stars, if you look at 31,000 car break-ins in San Francisco, if you look at sidewalks that are covered in needles and feces and broken glass, that's not doing the progressive movement much of a, of a favor. No. We've got to drill down and do that hard work of building a compassionate progressive city that's also a safe and a clean city. And that, to me, is the best way of becoming a national leader. But, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a headline this morning, you know, California cities deal with the defecation mess. New York Times says we have the dirtiest streets in the country. CNN is doing reports on the opioid crisis right here at home. That is not doing San Francisco any favors. Mm -hmm. And it's making it hard for us who live here, making it hard for families to stay here, for businesses, for tourists, for conferences. Mm -hmm. We've got to clean this up. Gascon is perhaps best known for his advocacy of Prop 47. Did you support that or not? I did support Prop 47 uh, for two reasons. One, you know, at that time, we still had a number of people who were in state prison for possessing small amounts of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is a vestige of the failed war on drugs when we talk about people who were users and on the possession side. And we had a Supreme Court order to reduce our overcrowding population in our state prisons. And so we had to be creative. But I think San Francisco's implementation of Prop 47 has been misguided. For example, Prop 47 doesn't apply to auto burglaries. Uh, it's still a wobbler, can be prosecuted as a felony or as a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. But those cases have serially been undercharged in San Francisco, whereas other counties dealing with the same state law, still dealing with Prop 47, have taken a much more aggressive approach to the organized rings breaking into cars mm -hmm. by the dozens, hundreds, or thousands. So we want to start an auto burglary task force modeled after what San Mateo and Santa Clara are doing to make sure that instead of one prosecutor charging all of these cases for the entire city, we have a team of five prosecutors working with investigators, working with the police to crack these big rings. So that's the sort of approach. It's not just Prop 47 itself. It's San Francisco's implementation of Prop 47. So what grade would you give him? You skirted that question. Gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, I'll give him a B minus. <laughs> okay. But I'm a notoriously tough grader. <laughs> he did not charge the officers involved in the Mario Woods case. Would you have done the same or would you have charged them? So I haven't seen all of the evidence, so I can't opine as to specific charging decisions in specific cases. But the fact that he looked at 26 officer-involved shootings and didn't file a single charge against a single officer, I think you can look at the body of work and say clearly there is a problem in terms of uh, enforcing the law against, uh, against law enforcement. And the DA has to do uh, something tricky here. It's a fine um, uh, tightrope to walk, but I think it's absolutely possible. If police officers engage in provable misconduct, they have to be held accountable. It's the reason I support Assembly Bill 392, um, which was just signed into law by Governor uh, Newsom yesterday, mm -hmm. um, that moves from a uh, uh, reasonable use of force standard to a necessary use of force standard. Uh, it's the reason I vowed that I'm going to make every charging decision within six months, hold a town hall, and consider all available charges, not just murder or nothing, 
but negligent discharge of a firearm, assault with a deadly weapon. Again, being a prosecutor, knowing the law, considering all available options. But you have to be able to do that. And on the 99% of cases that have nothing to do with officer-involved shootings, you have to be able to work with law enforcement on the sexual assaults, on the murders, on the you know people who are being attacked in the entryways of their buildings. We have to be able to work hand-in-hand on those cases. And I think being a prosecutor, having the support of groups like the firefighters and the deputy sheriffs um, positions me well to kind of bridge that gap. And there's been a rash of pedestrian deaths and bicycle deaths on our streets this year. And clearly City Hall is not making progress towards Vision Zero, its goal of ending traffic deaths by 2024. It's actually going backwards. Do you see any role that the district attorney could play in that? Absolutely. And we just rolled out a Vision Zero plan last week. Um, and the numbers, as you say, are completely going in the opposite direction. It's another thing I see, you know, working in the mid-market civic center area. One of the deaths happened at Golden Gate and Hyde, a block away from my office. Mm-hmm. Conditions on the streets are more dangerous than they've ever been. And the district attorney's office has to be a critical role in reaching that vision zero target. We're calling for an on-call prosecutor to respond to the scene of every traffic fatality in San Francisco. It's not being done now. It is being done throughout the country, and we need to adopt that best practice. Hmm. And that model would have two benefits. One, if you have an experienced prosecutor who knows the law in these areas respond to the scene, they will be able to oversee the police investigation from the very beginning and make sure that these cases are being investigated the right way. And number two, it's going to make it much easier for that prosecutor to communicate the details of what happened to a jury at a later trial if they've actually been there at the scene. They're not reading a police report and trying to reenact it. They've seen it. And I've said, you know, this sort of leadership needs to start from the top down. So I'm going to handle one of those um, stints as the on-call traffic prosecutor um, at some, you know, every year I'll handle one of those rotations. Uh, I think it's really important for the DA to be a leader on this. Mm -hmm. Not all candidates in in this race agree. One of my uh, fellow DA candidates said at a a town hall in the Richmond a couple weeks ago, they're called accidents for a reason. Who said that? Chase Boudin. Hmm. And I think that that really um, undersells the impact of these um, of these incidents and the fact that we've had 22 traffic-related fatalities this year alone, and we're four or five years away from the city supposed to get to zero. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we need to do something drastically different, and it requires every citywide leader, including the DA, to get on board. Okay. Well, you have survived the serious questions, <laughs> and now we will move on to the lightning round. Voters might make their decisions based on these. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? So the last really good burrito that I had was actually last week at Taqueria Guadalajara on Mission Street out in the Excelsior. Um, And I'm not being biased, though they did put up one of our window signs. (laughs) What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? My favorite movie filmed in San Francisco, there's a lot. And I live right by the Mrs. Doubtfire house. Uh-huh. So, you know, that always has a, a special place in my heart, but is The Rock. Uh, oh, I, we are screening that. You should come. I, I saw September 26th yes. at the Balboa Theater, right? For the, <laughs> Thanks uh, for the plug. For the plug, yeah. Um, I will be there for sure. <laughs> and uh, I, one of the f- cool things I was able to do a couple years ago was they did a screening of The Rock at Fort Point out there under the bridge. And so we were able to go, my wife and I were able to go out and watch it. And to be able to watch The Rock in sight of (laughs) The Rock was very cool. That is very cool. And very smart answer, I might say. Where do you like to go for a stiff drink? So 
I would say two. One is uh, the Brickyard, which a friend of mine owns up on Union Street. Uh, and we went for, uh, uh, we were on the trivia team there for the last seven years. So really mm-hmm. fun kind of midweek get together to see friends. Um, but I would probably not stay married through this podcast if I didn't say Monahan's on Pierce Street, uh, which is where my wife and I met seven years ago. Ah, So... Just randomly, or was it a blind date? Or uh, it was totally random. Uh, she was there for a friend's birthday party. I was there with some friends. We saw each other. Your from... eyes met across a crowded room. Our our eyes did <laughs> meet from across the crowded room. I had an opportunity to like really make a strong move and go over and make a first impression. I did not do that. I waited for about an hour, and then as soon as she was going to leave, uh, I got up the courage and went over and uh, said hello and. That's been, you know. I don't know. We need someone more decisive as a district attorney. I know, right? Well, <laughs> look, I had to come up with something good to say, and it took me an hour to do it. But hopefully I've become more decisive uh, since then. And over the course of this campaign, no one has said that I have any trouble not talking too much. So. <laughs> and you guys are expecting your first baby, right? We are expecting, yeah, baby girl uh, uh-huh. at the end of December. So 2019 is going to be a very busy year. What are you going to name her? Well, the leading contender right now is Olivia. Oh, pretty. Um, I have deferred all such decisions to my wife, given that she is going through the process of carrying uh, the little girl into this world. Um, But uh, it's a name we both love. I like that, too. Um, Okay, back to the scripted lightning round questions. Uh, What was your first concert? My first concert that I remember was seeing the Grateful Dead uh, at the High Sierra Music Festival. Um, My dad, in addition to being an organic farmer, is a 68-year-old white guy with dreadlocks. (laughs) And so he was a huge deadhead. I'm beginning to see why your name is Leaf. Why my name is Leaf, yeah. yeah. People look at me and they see me clean cut and wearing a suit. (laughs) People don't realize this is my rebellion. So it's (laughs) – But uh, yeah, it was it was really fun. You know, lots of uh, photos of me as a kid in tie dye shirts. And uh, my mom was actually pregnant with my sister at that High Sierra Music Festival, and she uh, got tired and went back to the room. Had a dream that my little sister came to her and said, "I'm a little girl. My name is Chloe." Aww. And sure enough, she had a little girl, and my sister's name is Chloe. Cool. What was the last book you read? The book that I'm finishing up right now is uh, Bad Blood. Oh, the, I just finished that. The too. Theranos that book, really good. which is really interesting and obviously has like a direct uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley tie in and a criminal justice tie in. I think uh-huh. that fraud trial. And shows the importance of journalism. Shows the importance of journalism. Absolutely. The book that I read before that was um, Billion Dollar Whale, mm. which was another one about corporate fraud. I don't know what's going on, <laughs> uh, but it was about this Malaysian sovereign wealth fund that, again, some reporters from the Wall Street Journal. Um, crack what was going on there. So, you know, a lot of times these big cases start with journalists uh-huh. and then they get passed on to prosecutors. So yeah. there's a direct uh, linkage. And what is your favorite depiction of lawyers in movies or on TV? My favorite depiction. So again, one of the one of the first movies that I remember seeing was the movie Philadelphia mm-hmm. with Tom Hanks and mm-hmm. Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were on vacation and it started to rain, and my mom and dad were like, let's go see a movie. And that was the one that was showing. And That's it's heavy for a vacation. Very heavy, especially for a seven-year-old to see. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it was, it's such an incredible movie yeah. and you know, deals with Tom Hanks um, uh, suffering from and dying uh, of AIDS mm-hmm. and being fired by his law firm mm-hmm. um, as a result of his uh, condition. And Denzel Washington takes on the case. And seeing both um, you know, kind of leading protagonists as lawyers – 
um, and seeing them come from two different backgrounds but kind of have their worlds um, bridged mm -hmm. uh, was, I think, an early inspiration for me being a lawyer. One that I didn't even think about until years later uh -huh. as I'm applying to law school. And I ended up writing part of my law school um, application oh. about the movie Philadelphia. Oh, cool. Um, do you hereby promise you will not blame the SFPD or Superior Court judges 100% of the time the Chronicle calls you asking about a case that's gone awry? I hereby <laughs> vow that I will absolutely take that pledge. Um, as I mentioned before, there is enough blame to go around, but that's not what leadership is about. The next district attorney has an opportunity to come in with a clean slate and really kind of lead the charge on these quality of life issues, whether it's car break-ins, whether it's um, drug dealing, whether it's assaults on our streets. And uh, passing the buck is not my philosophy of leadership. Um, I'm going to you know, stand up there and answer every question that people have and take some responsibility for it. Now, are these issues that we're going to be able to turn around in one year or even one term? Absolutely not. But I'm a young guy. I've got a lot of energy, and there's no term limits on district attorney. Oh, so how it, old are you? I'm 34. Okay. So if it takes, you know, 8, 12, 15 years, <laughs> DA is the only office I would ever run for in San Francisco. You I don't, could be there for decades. I could be, you could be stuck with me for decades. <laughs> um, but, you know, th these issues are not going to be solved overnight. And I think it's really important that we get someone in there who doesn't necessarily have their eye on the next office. Um, but really wants to buckle down and do the work of being the district attorney. And that's what I want to do. Okay. And last for the lightning round, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Well, we've had a new addition to the family this year, which is Zoe, our dog. We've got an eight-month-old cockapoo. And so I begin and end every day by taking her out and walking around the neighborhood. Aww. And no matter what has happened on the campaign trail that day or no matter how stressful things are, it is such a calming uh, influence and just so good to kind of have your priorities set beginning and ending every day. And you always clean up after her. Always. Oh, I have to tell you, I, my uh, hatred for irresponsible dog owners <laughs> has too. skyrocketed since getting a dog. Because now anytime I take Zoe out, there's people glaring at me because they <laughs> like assume we're all bad. This yeah. is my overall philosophy on accountability. We need to self-regulate people in our own professions because if we don't, it gives the entire industry a yeah. bad name. And frankly, that's true of uh, dog, uh, dog walkers. <laughs> that's true of prosecutors. That's true of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, let's hold the bad actors accountable so the rest of us don't get, you know, blamed for uh, for the uh, offenses of a few. Great. And for the first time ever on San Francisco City Insider, we have a talent portion. <laughs> I saw on Twitter that you play the fiddle and I told you to bring it with you and you did. So that's as much as I know. <laughs> talent portion is much better than a bathing suit portion. So I appreciate that. You're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I started playing the violin and the fiddle when I was seven years old. Um, and it was actually going to a music camp in the Redwoods down by Santa Cruz mm -hmm. uh, that was run by a guy who started the San Francisco Scottish Fiddlers, um, Alistair Frazier. And I still go. I'm actually going to pop in next week um, and say hello to a lot of old friends there. So cool. I'm excited to play something here that was um, written by the founder of the San Francisco Scottish Fiddlers. Wow. All right. One, two, three, four.
Thank you to Leif Douch for joining me today, to King Kaufman and Erica Carlos for producing this episode, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.